Welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian. With me is Vince. Uh, Zach had a little uh, incident tonight with uh, a feline member of his family, so he could not be here, but everything's fine. Uh, we'll have him back next week, and uh, we miss you, Zach. But let's get to this week's DC Comics. If you haven't read the comics released December 7th, 2016, why are you listening to this podcast? Go back, let's go back and read them, and then you won't be spoiled because we're going to spoil them for you. And uh, sorry about that. Uh, Vince, we decide going in alphabetical order, or what? Yeah, yeah, why not? All right, so first up we have Aquaman number 12, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Philippe Briones. And actually, a little announcement here, at the end of the show, you will hear a chat I did with Dan Abnett last week. Um, I meant to put it on last week's show, and I totally forgot. So (laughs) this week you'll hear an interview with Dan Abnett about Aquaman, and uh, Dan's great. So, um, Aquaman number 12. This is the beginning of the Deluge um, arc. Uh, the uh, Nemo organization has attacked the United States, has, uh, is posing as Atlantis, essentially, and uh, the United States has declared war on Atlantis, and uh, Aquaman doesn't want to retaliate. What did you think of the issue? I loved it. Yeah, and it, I, was, it I, was great. Yeah, it was great. I loved this book. I love that even though there are arcs and there are arc titles and things like that, it doesn't really feel it feels this feels like it's been one thirteen issue story essentially, if you're including the rebirth issue. Yeah. It's just it's just flown so so well from one thing to the next. And um and I, I, I love the way it's paced. I love the way the stakes are like snowballing. So like like there's there's real escalation and and every issue Abnett throws some little wrinkle into it so that like the odds against Arthur coming out of this unscathed are like ridiculously low right now you yeah. know um and it and it ju- it just keeps building and building and and I love that about it um just such a nice nicely done comic it, and it really is that it's the sort of thing that only long form serial uh, storytelling over several months can bring you, you know? Yeah. I, I had a thought after I read the issue, which is that um, this exact story, in fact, this exact issue could have come out essentially as the first issue of the series that like there's not that much background information that would have been needed to start with this storyline but because we've had three or four months of arthur like really dealing with this seeing who he is as both like as a fiance to mira as a king to atlantis as a member of the justice league as a son of both land and sea when you see him like stressing out and flipping out over over the attack, it just feels so much more authentic than if you just jumped in right here. And I think that before Rebirth, this is where the story would have started. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, absolutely. There's just so much more. There's so many layers to the Arthur character that weren't there six months ago. It's so refreshing to see it. Um, yeah, 
they really did a good job. I guess the one thing the one thing I would say about it is that <clears throat> this stuff the stuff with Mira, you know, being unsure and I can't marry you and all this stuff. That's a bit part, old hat. That that part to me seems a little like they're straining to, to add that dimension of um conflict to it. You know whereas everything else seems to be escalating in a very logical and uh and and really damning fashion for for Arthur all the stuff with Mira is kind of like un- until we see how that resolves i'm not sure i 100% buy the way that it's going you know um but that's no i mean that's a minor I just felt it was worth mentioning. I I I I, 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 I can understand what you mean by that though. Yeah. Um. I I think that Abnett is trying to show how everything in Arthur's life is crumbling right now. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so you know, like the relationship with Mira has to be part of that. But just by the nature of what this book has been, it's uh, you haven't. I don't think that's as compelling as the other stuff. Yeah, that that to me is very much like, um, uh, oh, I can't be with you, and I can't explain it right now. You right. Know, like, yeah, exactly. Yes. You know, yeah. It's not that bad, but but I, it's just a little, you know, compared to the international conflict that's going on, uh, that part just falls a little flat. I don't know. Maybe I, I, I'm making more out of that than than I than I need to, but. It's just something that occurred to me while I was reading it. Um, this is still a really, really, really good comic. Yeah. Uh, I think it's like the sneaky VIP of... Uh, the VIP, MVP rather, of uh, of Rebirth. Because it's one of the few books that... Took a character that had gained popularity in the New 52... Yeah. And improved upon it even more. Like, so much of Rebirth has been undoing the effects of the New 52. I feel like this is not undoing that. It's just building off of it in a way that is better than it ever was in the New 52. Yeah, I agree. It's tweaking it slightly to make it less... You know, he's he's got a more visibly compassionate streak to him. Yeah. Whereas Jeff Johns was so focused on making him a badass that it was at the mercy of all these other potential aspects of his character you know right and i found that i mean i know people liked that run but i found it interminable and just so decompressed and just really dissatisfying agreed completely but i agree that the the small tweaks that have been made were all that it really needed you know it was i didn't like it at all but in reality it really wasn't that far from being what i wanted right it just it just was just a, a short bridge too far, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is really good. And it Briones is. is doing some some really nice work despite, you know, he, he got second billing to Brad Walker and all of this, but Walker's been on, like, what, two and a half issues or and something? This is his fifth or sixth, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. For, so, for Briones. No, for Briones. Yeah, for Briones, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's doing some really nice work that, that I wouldn't have expected before this all got started, so... Um, yeah, this is the good Abnet book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, more on that next week or whenever that book is next out. Um, 
All right, that brings us to Batman number 12, written by uh, our pal Tom King, illustrated by Michael Janine or Mikel Janine. We never know how to say his name. Sorry, <laughs> MJ, you're great. Um, what's not great is this fucking book. Oh. Oh. Brian. I I don't know how to... I feel like every time you mention that we're about to discuss Batman, I'm always just sitting here going, oh. <laughs> oh. Just rubbing my temples, you know? You sound like one of the fish at Duff Gardens. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh. It's a deep Simpsons cut for you listeners out there. <laughs> yes, we, we're a big fan of those. Yeah, we are. So, but let's get specifically into what's wrong with this issue, because we've talked plenty about what's wrong with Tom King's run so far. Um, specifically this issue. So correct me if I'm wrong, Brian. Essentially what this issue is, is it's a 20-page letter, again, that Bruce is writing to Selena um, for the narration. And then, really, it's it's mostly just Batman sort of doing a the raid style um, escape and entry into escape from captivity and entry into Bane's uh, stronghold, so to speak, where he's just taking on tons of uh, goons, essentially. Well, he's giving this extremely turgid and overwritten narration, and that's it. Right? Like, yep, that's what it. Am Nothing. I, what am I missing? No, I mean, the end of the last issue showed Catwoman seemingly betraying Batman and the team. And then um, this issue is just Bruce getting to her. And yeah. that takes an entire issue of shitty narration <laughs> to do. And so, like. So. Let's talk about this narration because it was basically the sum total of what we're dealing with here. It's just so like like the conceit is that the idea of Batman or the idea of putting on a costume and fighting crime is a joke, right? Mm-hmm. And and Bruce is saying that everyone is laughing at him, and he knows it's a joke, but he has to keep doing it because. He has a death wish or something. Well, I, I, I uh, he he says essentially that when he created Batman, he killed himself, and uh-huh. that like his decision to be Batman is his decision to not be Bruce Wayne in the like to not live as Bruce Wayne essentially, and so. Even if everyone's laughing at him, he's not really Bruce Wayne. So, I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's, like, that could just be my reading of it. Because it's it's both incredibly dense and incredibly stupid and also incredibly vague in parts. Yeah. And to me, it's just an, it's an extension of uh, his stuff in the first issue about how... Um, he thought he was dying, and is it a good death? Would my parents be proud? Um, that doesn't sound like Batman because we're talking about a guy who, um, 
who killed Darkseid, you know, by like <laughs> turning himself into a bullet or something like that. Right, yeah. You know, whatever happened. And, uh, and it's just, you know, this is like a completely different Batman. But at the same time, it's, it's, this is, this is supposed to be a Batman that essentially fears death or something. Um, and yet he's no less ridiculous. And I would, I would argue this is some of the most ridiculous, you know, feats of strength and, and agility that I've ever seen Batman undergo throughout King's run. It's, it's, you know, it's like we're seeing two, it's like, it's like Batman is doing one thing on the page and he's, he thinks of himself in a completely different way. Only that's not, that's by mistake. That's not a choice that's being like actively put forward. Right. By the team. You know, it, it's like an error in, in the philosophy behind King's Batman and what we're actually seeing in the issue-to-issue events. Right. It would be one thing if we see Bruce racked with self-doubt and guilt as he's kicking ass, and we're seeing the duality of like his perception versus reality, mm-hmm. but I don't believe that's King's intent here. No. And, uh... And I don't think... Like, I don't think anything about this speech is in character. Like... Batman would never, and here I go sounding like, like, I don't mean to sound like the fanboy that's like, my version of Batman is the right one, right. and would only feel this way, you know, I'm just saying, like, if everyone has their own take on Batman, this one is so far afield to me, compared to others, that I just don't get it, I guess, because, like, the Batman that I think I've known all these years would not agree that putting on a costume is a joke or that he is a joke. Nor would I think he would agree that his life is like has less value right now than it did before or that he had to like to we were texting about this last week but it it seems to me like the answer to all of this is that King thinks that Bruce became Batman, like, so he could die, kind of? And we were saying that, no, Bruce became Batman so he could live. Yeah. Right. Like, Bruce became Batman so that he could make sense of the fucked up world he lived in, and he wanted to make it better. I don't understand how, if he is suicide, as he says here, how that makes the world any better. Because that, that's the core of Batman here, is that, like, if you, just, the, the fucking concept of Robin is that Batman sees what what happens, he sees his own future in front of him in the body of somebody else, and he wants to stop that from happening. That there is an ultimate compassion to what he's doing based on those around him. And to me, this monologue takes away all of that. Yeah. And I don't, and then he brings he brings Selena into that idea. And I don't he says that 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 they do they do what they do for the same reasons. And I don't believe that that's true for a second either. No, not at all. 
And I also don't believe that, like, King is writing this to have Bruce completely misunderstand Selina either. Like, this is literally how he thinks that Batman reads Selina. And, and yeah, she, she doesn't do it because she has a death wish either, you know. She's doing it, I mean, depending on which version of Catwoman you're reading, she's she's almost a Robin Hood figure, you know, Yeah. at times. Which doesn't jibe at all with what this narration says. Even if she's just a thief who likes shiny things, that doesn't give her a death wish. Yeah. I mean, literally, the, literally what I thought about when I read the narration is... This sounds like the freaking Joker. <laughs> it was that you twisted? Know? Like, that. that is why the Joker does what he does, maybe. Because he's got something of a death wish, you know? I could buy, I could buy that, at least. I don't know. Maybe we're entirely misreading this, but if we are, I, I also don't think that that's entirely our fault. I think that I think it's such turgid narration that like I don't think it knows what point it's making or at least it can't get that across. Yeah. I will say this though. Jennings art is just so awesome and it's so being wasted. Yeah. <laughs> that final page with Selena standing behind Bane yep. and like Batman pops in that looks like that could be like an iconic image that in a better story would be remembered for decades, you know? Yeah. But it's in a, a shitty issue of a mediocre comic. Man, I wish that Janine was drawing an arc of detective comics. Yeah. 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 I'm also a little bit upset that it appears that King got him in the divorce between him and Seeley. Because I would like to also see Janine do a Nightwing story. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's just a matter of time. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, our... we're not being harsh, right? Like. I mean, we're maybe being a little bit harsh, but I, but I but I but I really do. Th- I mean, look, nobody wanted this book to succeed more than we did. Yeah. You know. And yeah. uh, just don't hate us forever, Tom King. Yeah, we're we're good guys. We are, and we like you. We just don't like this book. Uh, anyway, anyway. Cy- Cy- cyborg number six, written by John Semper Jr., illustrated by Will Conrad. Did you Wilkerson this? No, I read it. Oh, I, I read it too. I should have Wilkerson it. You know what it is? This cyborg is a bad book with like one good idea per issue. What what in your opinion what was this issue's good idea? What's the good idea? Yeah. Um uh <laughs> having a having a female cyborg is a good idea. <laughs> is it though? <laughs> <laughs> um no, not necessarily. It's not inherently a bad idea. No, no, no. I, it's just no. I, I, under, I know what you're saying. That, that's kind of a meaningless in a bad book. That's a meaningless uh, enterprise. Yeah. Um. No. What can can we can, aside from talking about this book and how bad it is? 
Can I just talk about one scene that I ironically loved? Sure. Tell me if I read this wrong, okay? Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes I, I, you know, we got to le- read a lot of comics every week. <laughs> we <right>? do. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I feel like I'm maybe misreading something in an effort to not have to go and read something twice. But there's a scene where Vic tells this new cyborg, Variant is her name. Yes. Oh, she's a variant on Cyborg. I just got that. Um, You're joking, right? Yes, I'm okay, joking. Good, thank Jesus God. Right. <laughs> um, uh, she Vic tells Variant that she can look however she wants, like by thinking, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> so she creates this like human visage for herself, and then he acts surprised that she's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, what? And he just comes right out and says it too, like. It's totally horned up. Like, Vic is horny in this issue. Oh, oh, Vic is horny, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and he just comes out and says, like, wow, I've never noticed how beautiful you were. Yeah, she just created that image of herself. Not only that, but half of her face has been revealed this whole time. Like, she has a beautiful half face, but you think the other half's like a fucking walking asshole? Like, of course. Right, especially coming from a guy who is also half robot. <laughs> yes. Like, wow, that's judgy of you. Like, holy shit, look in the mirror, dude. And yeah. then, like, on the flip side of that, like, what was she going to do? Like, make herself into, like, a Wicked Witch of the West hag yeah. looking? Th- you know, like. I've always loved the films of Diane Wiest. Let me <laughs> <laughs> let me give my best parenthood haircut here. Oh, and, uh, that's. I love Diane Weiss, but that's not who you think a robot would choose to look like. Yeah, okay. Um, but that scene was, like, so bad. And that the... might not have even been the worst scene in the book. What was the worst scene? You have a, you have a funnier well, okay, one than that? Well, well, there, well, I will say that in that scene, when Vic transforms and he says, Booyah! as he becomes a human... <laughs> Was maybe the low point of the series. <laughs> Brian, he says that every time he he shows up in a boom tube. You've never noticed that? Does he really? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's how little I care about this book. You need and, some coffee, man. I know. I'm very tired. And I know that Booyah is like his Teen Titans Go catchphrase. Uh-huh. So maybe this is trying to appeal to folks like me. I also right. like, because my daughter watches the show a lot, and so I I watch the show a lot. I also like how when she transforms, she says, good thing I imagine myself wearing clothes, but she's not. <laughs> she's just in her underwear. Um, which is like a weird thing to say. <laughs> it's like if you showed up someplace like naked but just wearing shoes and like, good thing I'm wearing shoes. Like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Oh, man. And then they immediately bone. Yeah, they, they, they bone down instantaneously. But no, the... Uh, the, the maybe worst scene is so they go through the boom tube. He says "booyah," and they're uh, they're in Iraq, right? And they meet the the villain guy, and this is like this is the first thing he says to him. He said, "This sounds like Doctor Evil." I'm just gonna read this in the Doctor Evil voice, okay? Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Doctor Evil. Welcome to my private army base. It's from here that I intend to launch an invasion force and take over America first, and ultimately, if you'll pardon the cliche, the world. <laughs> like, it's the fucking worst dialogue ever. It's, it's totally fake Dr. Evil, like, spy, spy talk. 
It's so bad. <laughs> Am we've I wrong? So, we've had so many Austin Powers references on this show. <laughs> That's like a 10-year-old franchise. <laughs> but it, doesn't that sound like Dr. Evil? Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. It's so bad. I had so many more hopes for this book, and it just didn't turn out. Especially because when David Walker launched it like earlier this year or last year, whatever that was, that had some really interesting ideas in it, and this just didn't. Yeah. And if you didn't see her turning on Vic a mile away, then you've like <laughs> never read a comic before. So yeah. shame on you, DC. But they had sex, Brian. They did. Because that never turns out poorly. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that brings us to Dead Man, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, number two, written by Sarah Vaughn, illustrated by Lam Medina. This is a great comic. This was a very good book. I'm relieved that we get to talk about a good one now. <laughs> yeah, after two, two turds. I think, I mean, aside from the fact that the script is really good, and the art is really good, and the way that she's using Dead Man is very interesting. Uh-huh. I think just the fact that this book exists is the most remarkable thing about it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I think everybody should read it, but I think it's—I think the bigger story is that it's a testament to the type of book that DC is still willing to publish, even through Rebirth. Yeah. Um, it's really heartening. I hope people are reading it. I have one, like, the tiniest of quibbles with this book, and I feel like I, I'm i even going to preface it by saying I don't have a better answer for this, but I feel like because of the relative newness that is people identifying as non-binary, they go to a lot of trouble in both issues to explain what non-binary means. Yeah. And like in a clunky, over-explanatory way. Right. But again, I, I don't know I if there's that, a way around that. No, I think that is a necessity of uh, just the world right now because a lot of people don't understand that concept. Right. It's. I mean, it's true. To you and me, that sounds like an ordinary, ordinary, you know, thing that we understand. You know. I, I just feel like it's both. In one issue, that's one thing. But I don't know if anybody... I know that there's the expression, like, every comic is somebody's first comic. Right. I don't know if anybody's first comic is, is like, an oversized, <laughs> um, like, prestige format Dead Man comic in 2016. Um, like, if you explained it in the first issue, I just felt... I felt it took... That's... Those... The scenes, especially, like, outside of the castle, I really loved those scenes this week. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that just took me out of that. A bit. But again, that's a very minor complaint. Uh, Lan Medina is doing incredible work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. It uh, wow. it almost reminds me a little bit of Beetlejuice. <laughs> and I mean that in the best possible way. I mean, I'm somebody who walks around saying Michael Keaton should have gotten an Academy Award for playing Beetlejuice. But... Well, it was kind of weird when... Dead man said, nice fucking model, and then grabbed his crotch. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, Sandworms hate him, right? Um, <laughs> but no, the, how like in in um, in Beetlejuice, when the Maitlands go to like the other side, they come back and a lot of time has passed and they don't realize it. 
And that's kind of what happens with Dead Man here, where like he leaves for a couple of days and does if he has like no concept of time. And I kind of like the idea that like the ethereal plane or wherever he's living is is like is so different that even time and space seem off. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. nicely done. Yeah. It's back. Dead Man's back and he's good again. <laughs> oh! We'll follow. Uh, that brings us to Death of Hawkman, number three. Written by Mark Andreco, illustrated by Aaron Lepresti. Um, I'm still enjoying this book. It's... Yes, it's it's very funny. It's yes, a very it is. funny book. And and Mark Andreco is a funny writer, so I think that's to be expected. Mm-hmm. Um, he always injects a nice little bit of humor in his comics. I will say that I felt after uh, okay. So what we talked about in the first couple issues was how much impact is this going to have on the greater DC universe? You know, why does this book exist? And I kind of thought, well, maybe it's gonna, maybe it's teasing at something. And there is, there was talk that there's stories coming, right? That that there's future Hawkman stories. Yes, yes. The- this is gonna spin out into other Hawkman stories. Okay. Well, <clears throat> that being the case, my reading of it is probably wrong. But after reading number three, I came away thinking like, eh, this actually feels like a a, a very funny pretty well done but ultimately inconsequential miniseries just because i feel like the scope of it has kind of been defined now and the scope of it right now really just seems to be this uh conflict between um adam strange and uh alana Alana, yes, thank you. I was trying to think of her name. Yeah, yes, um, and really not much more than that in the in the greater scheme of things. But of course, a lot can change in the next three issues. So yeah, um, I'm enjoying it. I uh, even if it is just like an inconsequential miniseries, I feel like these are characters that DC has had in their in their quiver for a long time and hasn't done a lot with. And so it's nice to see Hawkman and Adam Strange getting a little bit of the spotlight. It's also nice because this directly references Justice League United. The um the, Le- right. the Lemire run which I enjoyed. Um so yeah, I like this. You know, again, it's it's nothing it's nothing all that um all that, you know, uh, mind-boggling or, you know, I don't know how much of an impact it's going to have overall, but I am really enjoying it. Yeah. Um, That's good. Yeah. Uh, that brings us to Green Arrow, number 12, by Ben Percy and Otto Schmidt. <laughs> What's funny? Um, Can we keep a running tally on our show? Can this be, like, a, a aspect of our show that... that, that that runs for as long as we go where we count the number of Donald Trump parodies that there are <laughs> in DC comics from, you know, from the Catwoman election night thing with, uh, with penguin uh-huh. to, to this guy in this fucking issue. Now, <laughs> can we just sure. count how many times somebody does a clear Donald Trump, yeah. um, impersonation? 
this one was perhaps the least tactful of any. <laughs> not that he deserves tact. Don't. Get oh no, wrong. not at all. No. Uh, but but yeah, subtlety is not the strong suit here. Um, um what'd you think of the issue overall, though? Oh, it was okay. Um, I, I love Otto Schmidt's art. I'm a huge Otto Schmidt fan. That is never gonna change. I'm on board for anything he ever draws. Um, I'm in. But, and I thought, so, this issue, like, uh, Oliver's back in Seattle, right? Mm -hmm. This issue dealt with, like, what, what the public thinks about Green Arrow, right? Right. And there was some fun stuff. It's kind of the thing that comics have done a lot lately in the last decade, where they show a lot of, uh, very meta-textual, um, opinions about the hero in question given by like a news report or something. Right. So right. there's somebody out interviewing people and there's the guy that says, Oh, I liked him more before the new 52 or whatever. Right. It doesn't literally say that, but that's right. what they mean, you know? And they hey, have the back guy off, that, you saved my ma. Yeah, exactly. And they have like, well, Batman's better. It, Green Arrow is just a Batman ripoff, which is something that actual comic fans say, you know? Right. It may not be the most original thing in the world, but I do get a chuckle. Like, I think a couple of these were legitimately chuckle-worthy. Yeah, I agree. Um, aside from that, the issue's fine. It's just that I feel like this arc is very much copying, probably unintentionally, what is going on over in Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> This is very much the same story as Aquaman. Um, That's true. Because he's being Green Arrow is being undermined by somebody who's blaming like murders on him, and it's like at every every turn of you know like every turn that that Oliver makes, there's another turn that like turns it against him. So it's like the stakes are piling up. It's not poorly done. It's just being done better over in Aquaman. So yeah. Like I'll also say that I feel like there's a lot of, whether it's intentional or not, a lot of nods back to the um, JT Crawl brightest day of him living in the woods. Oy vey. And I don't need to be reminded of that. No. Um, it's okay. I, I, said, I said a few weeks ago about this book. I feel like every issue of this book I like, there has not been one I've loved. And that's not due to Otto Schmidt's art, because Otto Schmidt's art's great. Yeah. I think it has a really interesting look and uh, gives something unique to the to the comics that we haven't seen. We haven't seen a visual style like this on this type of like a street-level book from DC in a long time. Mm -hmm. It's good. Mm -hmm. um, but there... There needs to be some more original storytelling happening. Yeah. Um, okay, that brings us to Green Lanterns number 12, written by Sam Humphreys, illustrated by Eduardo Panisca. I my one I wrote down a note for this issue. Uh -huh. It just says, blah. <laughs> like a sheep? Blah. Just like... Blah? It's blah. nothing. It's nothing. It's, it's... it's nothing. It is nothing. Um... Slightly better nothing than when the book first started. Yeah. Did yeah. Um, slightly. 
slightly. I think, I think its problem right now. So we're still dealing with the the Phantom Lantern, uh, Frank Leminski, uh, fellow member of the Polish Brotherhood, um, <laughs> who has, he's got the Phantom Ring. They're trying to make him into something of a complex anti-hero or like a conflicted, you know, he's just trying to do good, but I don't think I'm not buying it. Like they don't, they don't do enough to make him truly heroic. Really. They spend most of their time making him into a whiny guy who fucks up and is clearly corrupted by his power. You know, there, there's not, it's, it's wanting to tell you that there's some complexity in him and there's really not, um, from what we see. And that's unfortunate because I think it was – I've wavered back and forth in, on whether I thought it was a good idea or not, and I just don't think it was executed well. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, that's all I really have to say about it. It's, it is what it is. It's, 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 it's not a very good comic, and, um, and I don't know if it's going to be now. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I was I was slightly annoyed at how he was just like every page and a half he would he would turn a new color of lantern. Yeah. And there was no surprise there. It wasn't it wasn't cute or clever. It was just it was so telegraphed. And you knew he wasn't going to stick with one. Like I think it would have been kind of interesting if one of them just like really works for him and he winds up being that for two or three issues. That's yeah. way more interesting than him just being a mood ring. Yeah, and I don't even think that they did anything interesting with all the different... Like, they didn't do anything particularly um, characteristic of any of those lantern colors with him, you know? In fact, on the final page, like, Simon and Jess are sort of succumbing to fear, Mm -hmm. but he's in the orange lantern outfit at the time, and... I'm sure it doesn't matter. This is just some like nitpicky um, fantasy wank that I'm doing right now. But like, shouldn't he have been the Yellow Lantern when he's like instilling fear into them? Is he not the Yellow Lantern on the last page? I thought. I mean, look again. But I thought it looked orange to me. He was definitely orange right before then. Let's see. I gotta stop. We'll consult the emblem on his chest. Yeah. I got I to gotta quit sniffing glue before I read these issues. No, he's an orange. You're right. Okay. Yeah, I just thought it was weird. Like, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things because it's not a very good book. But, like, I just thought, like, mm, he should probably be yellow at that time. Yeah. That seems like a like a really, like, eh, you got the costumes wrong. Zero, zero out of ten. Um, so there is a, a Lego uh, Frozen Christmas special. That oh, my daughter's yeah, been watching. Baby. Was that? Oh hell yeah, baby! Yeah, my daughter's been watching it, and uh, there is a part where somebody said, "I think Elsa says like you have to let it go," and Olaf the snowman goes, "I know that song," and my daughter said, "He didn't know that song. He wasn't on the mountain with her." <laughs> so like, I have raised a, 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 a nerd in training. So. Nice. Nice, yeah. nice. Dad of the nice. year, right here. That's great. Um, it's kids, that kid's logic is really interesting. It is, yes. Um, she's not wrong. No, she's not wrong at all. Um, well, Vince, it's that time of, of the week again. 
<laughs> it's Vince fills us in on Harley Quinn. What happened to Harley Quinn this week? <laughs> uh, Harley Quinn with poop and pee with Amanda <laughs> Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti. <laughs> um, <sighs> this week, this 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 bye week, there was mm-hmm. a uh, a Wizard of Oz parody that took up about half the issue. Of course. Yep. It wasn't particularly. In, there wasn't really much interesting about it, but just you know that was about half the issue. And then she went to a roller derby, and then last page, Joker's back. He's good again. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Joker's back. Well, what's the etymology of that, Vince? Uh, that's that's my buddy uh, Drill on Twitter.com. Uh-huh. Yeah, at at D R I L. Yeah. Uh-huh. He said politics is back, baby. <laughs> it's good again. Ah, Wolf Howl. <laughs> I, I should just stop asking where things come from and just presume it's all drill. And I love drill. That, that's, that's not an insult to drill. Yeah. Um, right, anything else of note from Harley Quinn? Um, it's, just, it's just interesting because this is, for all intents and purposes the first real appearance of a, like in the current timeline of a Joker uh-huh. since Rebirth started, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. Any other Harley Quinn bullshit? No, 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 no. Okay. That brings us to Justice League number 10, a.k.a. Blame the Kids, uh, <laughs> by Brian Hitch and Neil Edwards. <laughs> this was a bad issue. Yeah, it was. They, I, they spent half of it, half of it, talking to that fucking nerd. Yeah. I'll give them this. I didn't see the twist coming, mainly because I'm not a moron and I wouldn't <laughs> think of that, but I didn't see the twist coming. I didn't see the twist coming because, like... Why would it be that? Right, but it's also so much better than what we just wasted, like, two or three issues on. Uh-huh. Like why don't couldn't we just like led with that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I I'm starting to think. I mean, I didn't mind this book at the start of Rebirth. I was pleasantly surprised by what Hitch had in store, but now I'm thinking like, I guess I'd rather have a Justice League that. I don't know. Is 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 is, <laughs> is written by somebody who can deliver massive drama in a compelling narrative way. Like I, I think Hitch is a fine artist for this type of thing, but I don't know if like I don't know whether to think that Justice League is like has the most enormous stakes or like the lowest stakes out of any book in rebirth, you know, I don't know. It seems like everything is a fake out or I don't know. I don't know. Do you have anything more to say about it? No, it's bad. (laughs) Um, to, to, to quote myself, it's a garbage comic. Um, (laughs) Midnight on Apollo number three by Steve Orlando and Fernando Blanco is not a garbage comic. Oh, so much fun. Delicious comic book. That like weird chess game in hell. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. That's like, oh man, that's so comic booky 
but also like very vertigo. Yeah. <sighs> it's perfect. Orlando just like nothing is off the table for him, you know? Like a lot of a lot of writers would have taken like a Midnight or an Apollo book and wrote a very straightforward, you know what to expect, uh, sort of beat 'em up comic, you know? Yeah, I would have um, never expected Apollo goes to hell. Yeah, Apollo goes to hell, and then like, not only does Midnighter have to rescue him, but like Apollo's got his own conflict down there. That's one of the most interesting conflicts we've seen in the post rebirth world. And like just the tension of, of Midnighter trying to get there is palpable. And man, it's so good. It really is. <laughs> um just top notch. Yeah. I, I feel like we're kinda of selling it short but not talking about it more. But it, it's it's operating as a, on a little island right now. You know, it's not really part of the overall rebirth narrative. We don't know what the future is for these characters. If they're going to stick around, or if because of the wild storm they're going to go away. I don't feel they're going to stick around. Yeah. Um, we might see alternate versions of them in the wild storm. That would be weird. It would be, but I think that's what's going to happen. Oh boy. Um, but we'll see. But yeah, th- this is excellent. It's an excellent comic. We need more comics like this. Yes. Um, speaking of good comics, uh, next up, Nightwing number 10, written by Tim Silly, issued by Marcus Toe. Um, we get Dick back in Bloodhaven. And uh, I really enjoyed this comic. Yeah, it... Uh, <laughs> first of all, I love the one-two punch going from Midnighter to Nightwing, which we've gotten to do, like... I feel like it's a tradition now. Yes. Because they're alphabetically in the same place. Yeah. But... Uh, just two like top notch DC comics right now. Um, as far as Nightwing goes, this like not only is he going back to Bloodhaven, and like so that's a return to a classic uh, status for for Nightwing, but the book itself, having Marcus Toe on art, yep, really felt like a throwback to that pre Flashpoint era. Not even going far as far back as Bloodhaven, you know, like just to that like Red Robin, Steph Brown, Batgirl era that I always talk about. Right. Like just the visual nature of this comic and him running into a villain named the Defacer, you know, like yeah. these are all things that come from a time in, when Batman was like really s- stretching out its extended cast and allowing them to have their own villains their own situations apart from the Batcave, you know? Um, Yeah, Nightwing is really going back to a sweet spot right now. And it was already a great comic, but it's like hitting this sweet spot for me that it's, 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 you know, my friend Teddy told me that nostalgia (laughs) means the pain from an old wound. (laughs) I won't, I won't go through the whole thing, but like, this is, this is literally like nostalgia porn for me. Yeah. Like I read this and I can smell smells from like six years ago. <laughs> you know? I um I, I really liked the part I I I, I, I was I'm not gonna say I was fooled by it for long, but when he's telling in the job interview like all about how like, you know, 
after Bruce did this and they go this uh, and you know Barbara said I have to do this like you knew he wasn't really saying that yeah but it was it was still a very fun sequence mm-hmm. and that's one of my favorite parts about this book is that it's allowing Dick to still carry a sense of humor with him and the book is still in some ways much lighter than you expect it to be you know he was reading fucking uh, Robin Hood Rebirth yeah you know like it's <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of funny in this book. And it's, it, the Bat books in the New 52, as good as they were sometimes, they were rarely not serious. Yeah. So, yeah. This is a good book. Yeah, very good. Tim, Tim Seeley, man, what a talent. Absolutely. Uh, continuing, we're going to have uh, four good books in a row we're going to discuss here. Uh, <laughs> number three in that line, Shade the Changing Girl, number three. By Cecil Castellucci and Marley Zarcone. Um Again, Young Animals, killing it. Yeah. Yeah, this was really good. This really... Um, this really hit me in the feels a little bit. During the whole, like... The swim team thing with her ex-boyfriend. Uh-huh. And, and she doesn't, like, feel connected to him anymore. And... Like you, you understand the situation, but you feel bad for him too a little, and yeah, it's just, it's it's really doing things with the madness coat and and the whole idea of of what shade the changing, uh, you know, man or girl, depending on what you're talking about, like the concept itself. It's really executing it in a new fashion. Yes. And that's really refreshing because not that I was worried about this under, you know, the young animal banner, but it would be easy to go back and rely on things using these characters and concepts that have already been done. Right. And shade, the changing girl has, has moved on to something entirely different while still using the fiction to back it up. Right. It's no, really good. it um, I feel like there's a lot of mystery in a, like every aspect of this book. We have a little bit of information about, but not all the information about yet. Mm-hmm. And every week, you get a clearer picture of sort of the world that the book is taking place in and the characters without getting a ton of answers. And that's really tough to do. It's really tough to give the audience information where they feel like they're learning things, but they're not. But they're no closer to solving the mysteries and fully understanding everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I have a theory on why that is. Why? What's your theory? When when I read the first comic, the first issue of this comic, okay, I I liked it a lot, and I but I thought, wow, this is a lot to like. This is a lot for like a new reader or somebody to take in. It's a lot of weirdness yep. that you have to sort out. But in reading it again and then reading the issues that followed, I realized that, yeah, it's a lot of weirdness. But if you break it down, it's actually incredibly simple. Like, the, the, the characters are not as complicated. Like, all the stuff that's happening, um, I forget the name. I forget what they call it. The, the, the like, where, like, all the alien weird. Yeah. 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 If you break that down, it's actually pretty easy to figure out what everybody's motivations are right. and everything. Um, 
you're not always 100% sure what the end game is. Like, that's what you're saying when you're talking about the mystery. Yeah. But, like, you understand that the Tilda Swinton, David Bowie thing character is looking for the madness coat, and it's of grave importance. And then you understand what these, like, aliens on the side are feeling and thinking, and it's it's not as complicated or as weird as it's presented as. I'll agree with that. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah, absolutely. It's um it's a really fun comic. Very fun. And and beautiful to look at. Oh yeah. Um I don't even know what my favorite of the young animal books is right now. Yeah, I don't know either. Um uh it's either Doom Patrol or Shade the Changing Girl now. now. <laughs> uh, and, I, but that's been changing. It's been swapping from issue to issue. And I think it's either Doom Patrol or Cave Carson for me right now. Yeah. You know you know what it is? What? My favorite, my favorite young animal book is the last one I read. Yeah, probably. That's, it's as simple as that. And that's awesome. And uh, closing out the show today, Superman number 12, written by Pete Tomasi and Pat Gleason, illustrated by Doug Monkey. Uh, we get the return of Frankenstein. He's back. He's good again. He's good again. <laughs> um, I love the character of Frankenstein in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. So this is a very welcome return for me. I thought it was a fun issue. It's nice to see Superman. Like I'm, I'm so sick of heroes fighting. I really am. But it's nice to see both of them like sticking to their guns here. Yeah. And not not trying to hurt the other one, just being like, "No, you're wrong. I got this." You know. <laughs> well, and this is not. This is also not Batman and Superman fighting for the millionth time. Right. It's Superman and Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is such a. Frankenstein has such his own personality and his own personal set of goals and morals at any given time that it's easy to see how he could come in and clash with hero with another hero, even though he himself is heroic. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, to me, it's a, it's a perfect fit without feeling like it's old hat. Yeah. Um, I will say that I don't like these issues. And I felt the same way about the last time monkey was drawing, which was during the annihilator issues. Uh Um, I don't like this comic as much when he's drawing, and it's not necessarily due to his art. I feel like they're writing a different comic when he's drawing it. Does that make sense? Interesting, yeah. When, he, when he's drawing it, they're very much writing like a brawler comic. You know, Superman brawling with Annihilator for two or three issues. Superman brawling with Frankenstein. Like, Whereas when you've got Gleason drawing it, or Jimenez... It's a lighter fare. There, there might be a fight scene or two, but there's humor, there's warmth, family moments, things like that. Those are fewer and far between on the Doug Monkey issues, I think, just by virtue of I think I think they like the way that he draws an action scene, and I can totally see why. So I think they, it's my impression that they purposely write like more of a heavy metal issue for him to draw. You know? That's really interesting. I hadn't really noticed that, but thinking back on it, I think you might be right. 
yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I might be forgetting some moments here and there, but, but the monkey issues tend to be more like Superman beat him up, uh, versus anything else, which is okay. It's just not compared to what, when Gleason is drawing it, it's not my cup of, not my cuppa as Mike Romeo would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. You know, I think that it's uh, it's tough when you're doing a book that has to ship this much mm-hmm. and where, like, you know, <laughs> it's just so funny because there have been essentially the same amount of action comics and Superman issues. Yeah. If you look at all the ground that's been covered in Superman, there was the Eradicator storyline that started off the uh, the book. How many issues was that? Like three or four? Yeah. What was there was there was even an issue or two before Eradicator even showed up. I think. You're you're right. Yes. Uh, the one where where um where John kills the cat. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was the second arc? Second arc was. Well, then there was a there was an interstitial issue that was the one where they go to the fair. That's number seven. So that's I think I think there was something before then. Oh, was there? I could be wrong, but uh, it was it was it was him taking John to the Fortress of Solitude. I think. Oh, maybe that, yeah. That was the, that was the Eradicator stuff, though. Yeah. See, but, I think there I think there were like two issues. Then there was like four issues of Eradicator. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. And then there was the fair. Then there was the fair. Then there was Dinosaur Island. Then there was Super Sons. Then there was Super Sons. Now there's this. Yeah, right. and Action Comics. It's been one giant wet fart. Mystery Clark Kent dickhead. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just it's just amazing how much more ground this is covered, and I wonder if part of the edict from DC editorial is like, all right, action is going to be these longer storylines, and so Superman can do these different like flavors. And I think if you're going to do that, if you're going to have the different flavors that I I'm glad that they're having a somewhat consistent rotating team of artists yeah. who, who are given their own flavor because I'll agree with them. Like monkey is awesome at drawing fight scenes. I had rather monkey draw this issue than draw number seven at the fair. Yes. You know, so I, I'm glad that they're identifying what the various artists are good at drawing. Even if not every, arc or issue is going to be as great as the book has been in other places. Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong, this is a good Oh yeah. This, this is a good issue of Superman, but it's 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 less diverse in tone and and subject matter than than we've seen. Yeah. Um but yeah, yeah, what a great comic. And yeah. and man, we'll talk next week about action again. And what a mess that book is. <laughs> um, I, I already have like a one-page diatribe written here. Nice. That uh, I'm going to restrain myself from reading the whole thing on air, but uh, oofed. I well, just I just think I realize why I don't like that book so much. <laughs> Dan Jurgens. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, anyway... Um, Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, you can follow Zach on Twitter at SirFox89. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Vince, where are you? I'm at VJ underscore. Uh, how do you spell my name? Um, O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And uh, 
We'll be back next week. So uh, enjoy this interview with Dan Abnett, and we'll talk to you guys then. Bye-bye. Oi! <laughs> so um, I'm really interested in your Aquaman run. First of all, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's I think, the uh, one of the best Aquaman runs of the last 20 or 25 years already because you're doing one thing that I think a lot of people forget to do with Aquaman, and that's you're giving him a personality. So many oh, times <laughs> Aquaman is this, you know, dour angry man under the sea and we don't get to see too much of of, of who the man is beside you know, underneath that facade so what are some yeah. of the things that you think are really important about your arthur like what are some qualities that you're really happy to see coming across uh gosh a lot of different things exactly that i think he, there is a danger that he becomes too uh too much of a sort of brooding figure that that, that has no personality which is exactly as you're saying there uh, and also that he, um, he he he's such an interesting combination of different aspects. He's a you know sort of he's an Atlantean. He's a surface dweller. He's a potentially a husband. He's a superhero. He's also a king. And although Atlantis is part and parcel of what uh, Aquaman is, uh, it's often seems to me it's just sort of set dressing. It's it's a responsibility that needs to be noticed rather than taken into account. So so actually the, the sort of political aspect of him as a king trying to represent his nation properly and engage with the world in a positive way is is something that I really wanted to pursue. So I, th I think when you start doing that, you then necessarily um, intercut his his statesmanship with him as a person and the, the, the conflicts of the two sides. So in, in, in other words, making more of the political side of it actually shows more of him as a person, um, which I think is a, a, a quite an important, an important aspect to do. And I'm also very conscious of the fact that although Aquaman is one of DC's, you know, core characters. Uh, he is also, thanks to the way pop culture has dealt with him, ended up being the butt of jokes. <laughs> you know, the, the the kind of Big Bang Theory or, or, or um, Robot Chicken idea of, uh, of Aquaman being the joke superhero who talks to fish. So I wanted to, rather than trying to, you know, just try and make him as cool as possible to avoid those jokes, I actually wanted to address that. It's about his relationship with the surface world. And I thought it'd be cool if the surface world actually in the DC universe, actually sees him as potentially a bit of a joke in the same way that the, the real world does um, in terms of their, their popular appreciation of him. Uh, in, in the DCU, that, that, that jokiness is mixed with a fear, a fear of the unknown. He is both amusing, because he's the guy who talks to fish, but he's also the guy who lives in the sea and he's a bit creepy and weird. And I thought, well, actually, if that's the way the world dresses him, that makes it much harder for him to, to walk up and say, take us seriously, take Atlantis seriously, particularly when his own nation, of course, is going, we don't like the dry land either. So so I really, to put him in the middle of, of, a, 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 of a lot of conflicting things, where he's trying to do the right thing, the good thing, very positive things, and it's not just one constant obstacle that he's got to overcome but it's actually lots of them some come from in front of him some come from behind him um one of the other reasons that i in the last few issues i've really tried to 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 increase the number of uh, of atlantean characters around him is to show that atlantis is not one thing it's it's a lot of different ideas and and beliefs and and, and opinions uh and that as a king he's got to listen to all of those and try and make sense of them so so that's that's what i'm really relishing about this i think it's um it possibly I'm, I'm sure you could do that with, for instance, Superman, or you could do it with Wonder Woman if you put them in a position of relating them to, say, Krypton or, or Themyscira. But, but with with uh, with Aquaman, I think this is an, he, he stands 
alone and unique in that role in in the in the DCU as a hero who has got unusual and large responsibilities. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting that you mention um, sort of his role of a king normalizing him. I had the same thought when I was reading it that, you know, by seeing how he leads, you kind of see what sort of a man he is. And that's really interesting. And I'm uh, I'm fascinated by that. I want to talk a bit about his appearance to not just the surface world, but to the Justice League. Because yeah. throughout your arc, he's been saying, you know, Atlantis isn't trying to attack. Atlantis is, we're cool. We promise we're not coming after you. And yet time and time again, people posing as Atlantis keep attacking. And you know, DC yeah. sent me a copy of number 12, so I've read that already. And we see this, you know, in on full display. How much rope do you think people like Superman and Batman are going to give him when he keeps saying, oh, we're not coming after the, the surface world, but people keep attacking. Does does he have a long rope or is, is this pretty much the end of the line for them I believing think, him? I think this is pretty much the end of the line, to be honest. I mean, that's one of the things, I mean, I, I very much picked that up from uh, uh, from Jeff's Jeff's run on the book uh, uh, and also on on Jeff uh, uh, in the Justice League, the, the, the Throne of Atlantis story, which I think is a, a really crucial uh, storyline where where we we appreciate that although he is a member of the Justice League, even the Justice League in 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 microcosm regard him with some suspicion, even though they admire him and respect him and consider him a friend, they regard him with some suspicion in in, in a way that reflects the way the rest of the world does. Um, and Batman in particular, obviously, um, uh, Batman in his own dark way has worked out how to take down every member of the Justice League if he needs to do that, should it become necessary, because it's likely to at some point. And he's sort of then horrified that Arthur has worked out how the Atlantis would conquer the surface if it needed to, <laughs> uh, and therefore considers him to be a really considerable threat. It's the, 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 so so, so that, that's, um, that potential conflict, that sort of, conflict in stasis has remained there all the way through uh and particularly when you have characters like ocean master i suppose black mantra as well who are out there doing things and and, and you know a surface dweller isn't going to be able to tell the difference between black mantra attacking and atlantis attacking for example yeah, they're all things that are coming out of the sea the sea is a big mysterious unknown and it should be we should be afraid of it um that does make his job harder so that so therefore uh, atlantis is going to take the fall a lot and obviously, in this story, the, the story with, with you know the one, the one that's about to start, the Deluge, uh, is a big self-contained story, which makes it great for, for for new readers. But it's also sort of the culmination of something that I've been doing since day one, since the Rebirth issue, which is to show that Arthur's path to trying to secure a place for Atlantis on the world stage is fraught with all sorts of problems, and it's not just the surface going we don't think we like you very much. And it's not just Atlantis going, we don't like the surface very much, but there are other players involved. And obviously this is, uh, um, this is to do with uh, Nemo, the secret society that, that, that essentially in, in very trite, tropey terms wants world domination by controlling the sea and has remained secret for so long and has made the potentially drastic mistake of recruiting Black Manta to their ranks. And Black Manta, go, uh, Black Manta I, I'm particularly pleased with the idea that Black Manta and, and Aquaman clashing in those opening issues of the series. Um, Aquaman essentially took him down psychologically rather than physically by saying, you're all about revenge. That's all you are. You're wasting your life. You're, you know, essentially you're pathetic. You know, grow up and, and, <laughs> and, and see more of the world and use your, use your abilities more broadly and for good. And, and Manta's gone away and gone, yeah, that's great. Gets recruited by Nemo, <coughs> excuse me, and um, and proceeds to 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 see what Nemo can do. So, ironically and 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 subtly in a way that Aquaman isn't aware of, he has made his arch nemesis worse. 
he has created a new arch nemesis that is even even more dangerous and has a greater remit that was used to be narrowly focused on Aquaman and is now focused on on everything. So this is this this has been building up, and obviously we've seen Nemo doing various different things with the um, the attack on the the, the USS warship uh, and the. Um, uh, the the unleashing of the Shaggy Man, things like that. They've done things that have been clearly primarily blamed on Atlantis. They've actually faked it so it, it frames Atlantis by using Atlantic, Atlantean armour and weapons and this kind of stuff. So we've already seen how that pays off badly in the story where Aquaman went to the White House and ended up clashing with Superman. And, and Superman gave him an opportunity. He says, I, you know, I, I can't believe this is you and you're telling me it's not so sorted out. Um, and that rope, as you described it, is now coming to an end. And the, and the deluge really is Nemo stepping up a gear and going, right, we're gonna, we're just gonna cause a war, and it's gonna be completely clear to everybody that that war is between the U.S. and Atlantis, even though it isn't, even though we are the third party manipulating everybody. And the Justice League are not going to be pleased about that, particularly Superman, who gave him that chance. And Aquaman's not going to be pleased about that either because he's fully aware that he's being framed. He's just got no evidence that he has. So this is a, this is a very, very drastic storyline. And I think uh, if, this, um, if this shows a divide between him and the Justice League, it's, it's going to be happening here. I think after the, um, the Shaggy Man story, uh, the Justice League sort of made nice to him. They came to make sure he was okay and said, you know, of course you're our friend and, and we respect what you did and you, you, of course you're a member of the Justice League. So there was a brief respite there, but that's not going to last long given what Nemo is about to do. <laughs> uh, I, I want to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on on how you work for a second here because you're writing two, you're writing three DC books right now with Earth yeah. 2 wrapping up, but uh, with, with Titans, you've had a very consistent artist. You've had Brett Booth on every issue. I know he's off in January, but he's been a very consistent presence. With Aquaman, yeah. you've had to juggle a number of artists drawing the book. So as a script writer, how does that present a challenge to you if you're not exactly sure who's going to be drawing your book. Does that change the way you write, or do you write how you write and let the artist figure it out? I think, oddly, in this, I can imagine it would not work well on, under other circumstances. With Aquaman going out of the gate, we knew that it was shipping twice a month. So we knew that no single artist would be able to do it all. Uh, so Brian, editor Brian Cunningham, built this, this you know, team of artists with, uh, with, with Brad Walker and, and, then, and, then, and then Philippe and... and um, uh, and Scott and we, we created this team of artists who would basically rotate and they would they would they would they would do the whole thing. Now the, the great thing there is, although it's not one artist, we're kind of still consistent. We know that it's going to be one of those guys. Uh, they're all great. They all deliver amazing work, um, and it's simply like it turned into a little factory. So weirdly, when you usually usually you're on a book and you're working with an artist, and there's going to inevitably come a point where the artist you know, has a problem, runs late or, 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 or you know, something requires a fill-in or, 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 or to give him a rest. And that usually comes as a surprise. You've got to run around and work out how you're going to kind of accommodate the idea that the next issue or the next story arc is going to be drawn possibly in a very different style. So it's that's sort of more awkward because you, you, you don't know when it's going to come. Uh, with this, we know on a on a, on a on a issue-by-issue basis that it's going to be one of two or three different artists. So I write it just consistently. I try and write them in chronological order. I don't try and jump ahead to make sure somebody's fed with stories. I make sure that everything is locked down so that there is no sort of loose end or misconnection anywhere, so that there is a building building process. And they simply go to the next artist 
in that rotation who is available, who is ready to do it, who can do the do a good job, um, and uh, and therefore there is this sort of very in the nicest possible sense a production line where we're working as a team. And one of the things that happened that I thought was brilliant because it didn't happen, it didn't seem to happen deliberately, it just seemed to happen organically, is that right from day one. Everybody, me, the editorial team, uh, all the different artists, and indeed the colorist, um, linked everybody into every email that went back and forth. So we're all party to each other's discussions, uh, how each other is doing, what they need. So you, you started to see in these email chains, an artist would say, uh, what, what, you know, what, who's, who's going to be designing this? <clears throat> and the artist would decide between themselves who got to design different things, depending on who was going to draw it most or who had the opportunity. You know, I've got five minutes now, I'll design it whilst you're getting on with it. There's a lovely sort of collaboration going on. Uh, and also artists can look at each other's work as it comes in and say, uh, or you've forgotten to, you know, Aquaman's got damage to his left sleeve in the issue before because he got attacked by somebody. So don't, don't forget to put that in. So there, there is, again, we, we're catching each other's um, uh, continuity, I suppose, more than anything else, which is is lovely. And it wasn't, it wasn't specifically designed that way. It's just happened that everybody's just gone, we're part of a team, let's share everything, rather than Brian having to remind people to, you know, send back and forth. So there is there is a a very nice... I won't go into detail as what it was because that's, you know, showing you behind the curtain in the sausage factory about how the sausages are made, which you should never see. But there was something that came up recently where where we decided fairly late on that we wanted to do... A particular thing better and it wasn't because the artist had done it badly but somebody had said wait a minute if we did this this would be really really a much be a much better way of going and instead of us all groaning we all went oh, that's fantastic and everybody jumped in everybody was throwing in designs everybody was was helping sort of doing with the, the various patching and, and additional stuff that we needed to do and i and they gave me everything so i could see an overview and and re-dialogue over a, a course of a couple of issues just to make it all seamless and the end result is so good what was there was before was fine great it would have worked perfectly well but it, what's what we've, what we've transformed it into is 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 i think terrific and it wouldn't have happened if everybody hadn't just been talking to each other routinely on a daily basis. So full marks to the Aquaman team, I say. It's, it's just, it's great to see everybody so willingly and enthusiastically doing that. That's great to hear. Uh, I want to talk before we wrap up about Atlantis and the Atlanteans in particular. These yeah. are characters that in the past have been even more dour and one note than Aquaman at times. And, uh, you know, you've done a really nice job imbuing a little bit of personality, but keeping a little bit of an edge there. You know, they, they see themselves as being superior in many ways to the surface yeah. dwellers. So how do you, uh, I'm just going to put this bluntly, how do you make them not all giant dicks all the time? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's my background in, in actually in SF, in writing SF novels. Uh, or indeed novels of any sort, long-form novels of any sort, where you were juggling larger casts and, and, and dealing with, with character in a, in, a, in a very different way that has set me up for that. But it, but I sort of, you know, I, 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 see, I see Atlantis, rather than it being, you know, this mythical underwater kingdom, I see it in terms of the way you would make that feel, as it were, authentic if you were writing it as a, a fantasy novel or an SF novel, or indeed even a historical novel. If we pretend the history of Atlantis is real... What would it be really like? That intrigues me. I want to. I want it to feel authentic. I don't just want it to feel like, you know, the the, the hyper enlarged fake castles and stuff you get at the bottom of a fish tank with people in it. I want it to feel like it's a genuine nation that just happens to be underwater. So, so to find 
jobs and responsibilities. One of the things I've liked writing is to, is to create a cast of characters who who have, as you say, different personalities. There are some who are very bold, some who are quite arrogant, some who are there's one one in particular who's very very timid, uh, one who is very quiet. You know, the sort of so they, they, their characters reflect the sort of character the the, the 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 range of characters you get in any group of people, uh, and then to show that they each do very important tasks. Aquaman is quite happy to delegate, although he does lead the way and he does everything heroically himself. You see him turning to, you know, he's, he's he, the, 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 the woman who commands the, the fleet and, and the scientists and that kind of stuff for their expert advice in the same way that any nation or, or unit or organisation would work because that's the whole point. Atlantis isn't just Aquaman. He's the king and, of course, he has subjects and staff and people around him who are vital to keeping that city running. One of the other reasons that I made uh, Tula, um, the regent of Atlantis, because it occurred to me that what does Atlantis do when Aquaman's not there? You know, it can't just go. Oh, the king's gone. We just sit here and wait for him. You know, they 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 need to they need to they need to be functioning on a daily basis. So I think that to me that feels more authentic. That he goes back to Atlantis. People are bringing him reports. They're talking about stuff. He has a problem. He talks to them, consults them, and gets their different opinions. We're going to see that a lot in the Deluge because obviously this is Atlantis as a whole under threat. Uh, um, and 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 just as I said at the start of this conversation, dealing with Aquaman as a political figure means by necessity you have to see him off duty as a person uh, to see how he really feels about the things he's doing politically, which means you get to know him personally more. I think the same is true of Atlantis. When you, you see them doing their jobs and you see them their, their, their personalities interweaving, you get a greater sense of it being an actual place populated by people rather than, as you say, you know, giant dicks in, in, uh, in, in, in underwater outfits going, we're Atlantis. Um, I, I want I want people to sympathise with Atlantis. I think we I think the um, I think maybe in a, in a you know in a, in a in a not in a very deliberate didactic way, but in a, in a in a in a in a broad general way to think about the way nations and populations deal with each other, uh, and it's in the real world uh, how we think about uh, our neighbouring countries and, and and world events by doing it dealing with a, a completely fictional nation in terms of Atlantis. It does away with any of the, the the baggage that might come with doing a story about a particular country, um, and, and I'm inviting the readers to sympathise with Atlantis and see Atlantis as being a pretty decent place where people have, you know, deserve to have, uh, you know, to be treated fairly, uh, but they are themselves not perfect, and therefore they will sometimes do things that makes other people not like them, and I and I um, and that's that's a great opportunity, and I think it makes it more interesting and it makes it more real. I, I feel that Aquaman ultimately is. Uh, sort of, you know, he's he's that he's that um, that magic act where you spin plates on on the tops of sticks, mm-hmm. and you just got to keep them all going. And <coughs> the moment your concentration where it very wanders, one will fall off, and that's and he's just got to make sure he keeps everything balanced. His relations with the surface, with the Justice League, with Atlantis is Atlantis happy? Is you know that kind of stuff, and that's the responsibility of 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 of, of ruling a nation, I suppose. Um, and that, to me, is is a fun thing to do. It's not like there is a, a single destination in mind that when he gets it, that's that's done. It's an ongoing job, and, and I want to show that it's a difficult one to do. Uh, I had a thought while reading number 12, because you see a press conference with President Obama speaking. Yes. And I thought, oh, how different this book would be if it was written <laughs> in March <laughs> or April with Donald Trump as the president I, after I, the U.S. is attacked. Absolutely. We uh, That's... that's 
it's funny, really, because obviously this is not the first time the president has appeared in Aquaman in the course of this story. And the, and the, and the first time we did it, we, we managed to, we just deliberately sidestepped the idea that the president would make an on-screen appearance because he deals with, Aquaman deals with, with his chief of staff and stuff like that. And the president, the president is a presence in the story, but the actual identity of who the president is, is remains you know, sort of ambiguous because that means you can read the story at any point and not go, well, that's not the case anymore. But with this story, it really needed to needed to be. We needed to make the point that this was the president addressing the nation. And we had a long discussion because we knew when it would when it would fall that, it, that this issue would, would appear post-election, but 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 actually pre-inauguration. Uh, and I said, should we should we should we almost leave that panel blank and draw in draw in the right president? <laughs> who it was? Do I do I need to keep the dialogue vague? In, indeed, even do I need to keep the dialogue vague or subject to change so that I could change the gender of the president, which was something else that obviously was a possibility. I thought I thought, and we eventually said no. We'll just we'll just stick with President Obama because he is still president when this book comes out. Um, but it did occur to me that those those that the, those scenes would read very differently uh, depending on the result of the election and and post that absolutely it would but then again if <clears throat> if i am pursuing stories about ackerman as the leader of a nation dealing with the united states on a regular basis who knows what will come next year when i, uh, I can't wait to see trump in a scuba suit <laughs> yes <laughs> coming down for a state dinner that would be uh that would be a hell of an issue to write i think well i, I expect co-credit when that happens okay. uh, <laughs> uh final question i want to talk about mira for a second uh mira is a character that even before Jeff came on Aquaman was starting to pop up as a more uh, prominent figure in the DC yeah. universe. You know, she's going to be in the Justice League film. It's just a character that has this nice long build up to something special. And it can't be easy to write the character as both being a romantic foil as well as a political foil. And especially because you can't really because of this sort of perpetual second act nature of comics, you can't necessarily jump too far ahead on either of those things. You can't have them all of a sudden married for 10 years and in this sort of nice domestic, you know, routine, nor can you have them constantly fighting. So how do you make that character an interesting foil, but also keep things moving at the typical comics pace, but also make it something people want to read? Uh, it, it's, it's, it is tricky. Um, I think, I think, again, I, I sort of think, think my way into, into, into her head and what she's doing and what she's going to, how she's going to respond and what she's, what she's going to get up to in the course of the story in the same way that I do Aquaman, it, it, you know, literally try and make it as authentic as possible. She is committed in her relationship to him and therefore realizes that one day she will effectively be queen and therefore is, is taking on responsibilities. So again, the, the analysis of her character and behavior <clears throat> it's very similar to the way I look at uh, look at Aquaman. I try and, like I said, try and make it authentic. The, to me, the um, the significant, the biggest problem with Mira, Mira, I think, is a, an amazingly strong character. I think she's great. I'm glad that she is finally getting the the sort of exposure and 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 profile that she deserves. I think she's probably the most uh, sort of underrated character in the DCU. I think she's she's um, amazingly good. She should be a uh, a charter member of the Ju Justice League. Uh, I think she's she's that strong. She's that that interesting. She's that cool. Um, and in fact, one of the problems in in writing Aquaman is that it's actually really a, a book about both. But both of them, it's got Aquaman on the title. But the, the two most important characters in it are Arthur and Mira. And and there is a danger that Mira almost will overshadow uh, Arthur because she is sort of 
free from the restraint of it being her book, she's sort of more feisty and interesting. Uh, and so actually the biggest problem is making sure that it doesn't become Mira featuring Aquaman. <laughs> um, but it, it Aquaman, and, and, that, and so we see that. And, and you're absolutely right. There, there are there are certain things. It's, it's, it's just trying to keep that, keep the, the situation um, fluid enough that we that people aren't sort of impatient for some kind of resolution uh, yet it make it feel believable this is an ongoing relationship and that's one of the things I did there obviously we've set up in rebirth Jeff's rebirth set up the the proposal that they were going to get married and we thought about this and we thought about when when we should should we do that and and should we do that is it gonna is it gonna be plain sailing um, and if it doesn't happen or if we want to delay it as you, as you're indeed seeing now in the issues uh, that can't just be uh, you know a kind of artificial something happens and they change their minds. They're actually got to be fundamentally woven into the story. So actually there is a, an entire story thread there that we've begun to see with the, with the widowhood, which explains why there is a slowing down of her relationship and indeed a change in her, her mind and heart in terms of what she, what she thinks is the best thing to do. So, um, so yes, it is tricky, but I'm actually very grateful for having her there because it makes, it gives her, it, she becomes the core of the supporting cast around Aquaman, which, which gives the book, greater presence and greater population uh, and i think offsets him in the moments that he does become grim and doer it, it, it offsets him quite nicely to have to have that and i think that's uh it's very important so she 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 to me is a crucial character um and one that you just need to you need to as like i said the the the, the, the um the hardest thing is not to use her too much so that she uh, she becomes the the focus of the book <laughs> Uh, I have to let our listeners know that you have a three-foot stormtrooper in your office, and I love that. I'm sure everybody does that. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs>